0: hi this is Dan Sullivan and this is today's episode of free zone success story and it's a great pleasure I have David Riling and David lives in Minneapolis so privately owned bank in Minneapolis but when you hear the full story you realize yes he's located in Minneapolis but from a technological standpoint he's connected to the whole world and it really shows you where banking will go in the 21st century but very interesting right now because we're interviewing David during the scary times of the pandemic when everybody has kind of been put on pause and just what kind of thinking is taking place and what he's seen as possible right now that wasn't possible before the pandemic started. So, David, just some things that are exciting you right now. We're about five weeks in since the close down and just how you're looking at things as opportunities right now that weren't there before has started.
1: Yeah. So Dan, our life at Sunrise Banks has changed dramatically in the past 30 days. As you know, as the world went to shelter in place in the United States, the government came in with a CARES Act of $2 trillion and a huge amount to help support small businesses and what's known as the Paycheck Protection Program. And this was absolutely a pivot change for Sunrise. I have shifted every resource that's possible on producing these loans. And the thing that has really become amazing is not only we're providing these loans to our customers who they need it and their employees need it from a paycheck standpoint, but we're getting huge outreach locally from non-customers that are both local, which is fantastic. so our competitors either not taking these applications or can't get to them, and so they're coming to us and the even more exciting thing is we have people from across the nation who are coming to Sunrise for a paycheck protection program and Love what we do. See our website. We're developing a whole new set of resources for all these people across the country. While the short term is very much in regards to this program, the long term is we now have 3,000 more prospects in order to do business.
0: Wow. Wow. So we're going to come back to this story because we're going to do a little back to the beginning of the story. So what we started here was kind of a chase scene. You know, usually at the end of the movie, you get the chase scene. So I gave you the chase scene. But what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning, the entrepreneurial beginning of David's story, just how he got so interested and so passionate about banking, especially the way he's done it. So, David, take it back. What's the beginning of this? Teens? Is this in the teens? Is it college? Some area? Early time like that?
1: Well, Dan, the fascination with banking really started when I was 18 years old in Minneapolis in a bank in the urban core of the city. And, you know... I just loved being a teller. There was money in the bank that I was in that summer, got robbed twice, once to the left of me, once to the right of me. While most people would be scared, I thought it was fascinating. And I had work construction every other summer. And so being a bank teller was an absolute joy in many respects. And I thought it was great. So the career kind of morphed from there. I go to college in California and started a company selling t-shirts and sweatshirts, which grew up to be a fairly sizable company. Weirdly enough, it still exists today. But I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a banker, and so after I graduated college, a few months after, sold that business, went to work for a bank called First Interstate Bank in Los Angeles, and wouldn't you know it, that the first two weeks of being on the job, the bank I'm in gets robbed three times, and so my mindset was, bank is where the money is, gets robbed. This is just like normal course of business for me, and so you know, I knew the FBI agents by the third robbery and what to do and how to separate the tellers and the Customers. And the FBI
0: is involved because it's a federal crime,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's always involved. And so it's a crime scene and they're doing fingerprints and all that, interviews with the teller. The district manager felt that I handled myself well as a trainee, a couple of weeks on the job, and she immediately sent me to South Central Los Angeles. And so South Central at that time in the early 90s was the bank capital of the world. So I spent a number of years in the hood. So I learned how to navigate gangs. The Bloods and the Crips were fighting over turf in South Central. There was riots, Rodney King, fires, earthquakes. It was just one kind of war scene after another, all of which I thought was just invigorating and thrilling to me. They gave me a ton of responsibility as a banker, being a trainee, and I learned a ton, so that was terrific, but every day was different. One of the, I think, big learnings out of there is when you're in a situation or an environment like that, you really learn how important a team is and how you work together so much just out of self-preservation that you're you know, watching each other's back. And so it was kind of out of that. And It was really the third time I had a gun to my head that I felt that my luck would run out. So it's then that I went to work in downtown Los Angeles for Citibank and had a whole nother great experience from an international banking standpoint. And that kind of led me into a situation where I moved back to St. Paul, Minneapolis, and bought a bank with my father. And this bank was located in a low income neighborhood. It's actually where my Italian immigrant grandmother lived. I knew it really well. I played stickball with all the immigrant kids growing up there. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. But it was really clear from the very start that the only way this bank was going to succeed is if the community succeeded. And so that's kind of the based on the foundation of the mission of the organization and the engagement with the immigrant communities that really they did well and we did well and we built a community that became more for jobs, more better housing and the bank did well and they did well. And so that's kind of led up to, and you know, when you're working in the highly regulated world of banking and immigrants, it's not always perfect, particularly in low-income communities. So you figure out how to innovate with anything and everything you have. It's a little bit like a crisis every day. And so the fact is you figure out products and services and tools and partnering because it's out of necessity and it's good for everybody involved. And so I think that kind of leads us up to today where-
0: Well, there was the beginning of the year and I remember because I saw you in December of 2019 and we were talking about what kind of year you were looking for. But the way we have to talk about the first two months of 2020 is that it's the old normal. That was back when you were in the old normal, and you were looking forward to what kind of year you were going to have. Just before we get to, you know, the scary times and the new normal, can you just talk about how you were seeing that year? Because you were doing a great number of things that were technologically based. You've always been a real fan of using technology to take a local bank and make it in some ways part of a global network.
1: Yeah, so on that front, Sunrise really has kind of two main parts to it. One, as you might surmise, it's very much a community bank. We have locations and bank branches and where people come and make deposits and take out loans. The other half of our business is very much in the financial technology space. We're the third largest prepaid card issuer in the country. We partner with financial technology companies across the country and we're really the back end. So we leverage our charter, and these companies will offer loan products, or they will offer depository products, and we're really the engine behind it. And so, you know, as of the end of the year, and the beginning of the year, the focus in on more fintech partnerships really was going to be our lifeblood to the business growing. Interest rates are still low, we're, you know, kind of struggling with our margin, but fintech is going to be the place where we were going to grow. And so, That was kind of the precipice of the year, and so much so that almost we're still thinking about almost break the bank into two parts, the regular bank and the technology bank, and really spinning up a service bureau that caters directly to those and building the technology stack there.
0: Well, how far do you go abroad, I mean, with this, like that you would consider, you know, you're having phone calls, you know, with your local team, downtown Minneapolis, St. Paul, suburbs. So you're having conversation, but then you're talking to someone across the world far. How far would that take you just on so, a kind of like a regular conversation? Where would that take
1: you? Sure. I mean, our target market, quite frankly, particularly in the fintech business, it's the UK, it's the EU, so it's Europe, and it's all in North America, so Canada and the United <laughs> States. So We have conversations with potential fintech partners on any one of those countries and zones kind of on a regular basis, really almost every
0: day. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting operating in these two worlds. So let's bring us now up to scary times. I call this period scary times, and this is something that I labeled right after 9-11 in 2001. I created 10 strategies for keeping your head kind of straight and focused and positive during scary times, and we brought it again Back in 08, 09, when we had the recession, and the moment that we realized that we were going to have to shut down coach workshops for a couple months, I said, oh, scary times again, let's bring scary times to the front stage and let's get out there. But I'm going deep with it right now. So in my mind, there's three time periods during 2020, there's old normal for two months, Now we're in scary times, we're in our second month of scary times, and then there will be a new normal. I'm just keeping track of the national narrative now, and it's really clear there's a total commitment now to get people back to work. I can see it growing every day. The question is how, but one of the questions that has been crucial is there a new normal to go to, and that has a lot to do with the banking industry and its relationship to private business, especially the private business sector. So can you talk about how you're seeing, one, how important your role was during scary times because of the government, because of the large amount of money that they made available so that things are staying liquid? I mean, the big thing is for things to stay liquid. But then how this has shifted, you're thinking about the remainder of 2020. That'll be a new normal once the all-clear whistle
1: goes out. Yeah. So really interesting. So I just have to give you a marker. So at the end of 2019, Sunrise was a billion one 000, 000, 000 in total assets. And we were looking at a year that I would say was pretty much like the previous year, but we had to cut some expenses to kind of get there because you know the difference between deposit rates and loan rates were pretty tight. So that's how we go into 2020. It's almost, that's the old normal And then there was another period of time, right before the crisis, where the Fed dropped interest rates 50 basis points and then dropped them all the way to zero. For us, there was about a two-week period, maybe three, of an old normal that was a panic. That just took a huge chunk of revenue right out of us. And we were like looking at deep cuts left and right. And then comes the aid package to the CARE Act and this Paycheck Protection Program, And this is going to not only save the year from a revenue standpoint, it could turn out to be our best year ever from a revenue standpoint. And quite frankly, the way regulations have played out for us, we might go literally from a $1 billion bank to a $2 billion bank in the course of about eight months or less, really in the course of four to six. And so it may double the size of it. Now, as we come out into the new, our pivots to go to technology-driven banking is going to be even harder and faster. It's the one thing in scary times, you make decisions with even less information, but you do it out of commitment, encourage, and you just go for it. And so we're taking that same mentality and putting it towards a pivot towards financial technology. Now, as a result of these scary times, we now have 3,000 new prospects, both locally and nationally, in which to engage with on a commercial business transaction and leverage the power of technology in order to do that and serve them. It's a huge opportunity for us.
0: Yeah. Do you have sort of like-minded other people in the banking industry that you're kind of forming a group? You know, it's probably virtual. It's a virtual group. But do you notice this like-minded, especially at the community level, that there are certain individuals out there who are players that you admire, players that you enjoy talking with?
1: Absolutely. And again, there's only... There's two handfuls of these types of players who are thinking in this abundant way, and they're constantly changing their model, they're innovating, they're trying new things. So yeah, as a matter of fact, I communicate with them regularly throughout the day and the week, and we talk about, you know, what do you see? And since we're in different marketplaces, it's really easy to share information that's critical to all of us, and so we can go even faster. So it's from that kind of aspect that, yeah, there's about maybe 10 banks like ours, and some. That's about
0: it. It's not me. The interesting thing is it's probably a new banking industry that's starting, you know. Now, I was thinking back, might be 25 years ago, I was guest speaker and I was at a function and there was another speaker and his name was D. Bach. And D. Bach is the guy who went across the country for about 15 years and convinced bankers that they ought to be part of a credit card system called ChargeX.
1: Gotcha.
0: which then became Visa. And it was very, very interesting. He said, I was like a missionary of trying to convince local banks why it would be a good idea for them to be part of this national network. And he said it was a tough grind. And one of the interesting stories he told me, which I didn't know, was how the credit card in the banking industry really got going. And it was Bank of America that actually did it in California. And Bank of America was created Basically for Italian immigrants. Yeah. In California, G&A
1: is the founder. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> the normal
0: banking system wouldn't give them any credit, especially yeah. for the entrepreneurs. And then one of the ways he grew them really fast is he just sent out credit cards. He sent out credit cards to millions of people, and all of a sudden his assets went from here to here to here. And that's why they passed the laws that the banks couldn't have branches across state lines because the yep. eastern bankers could just see this colossus coming from California. But you get the feeling that it's this kind of situation or these kind of times when a, an entirely new form will. And if you've got 10 of them, you've got yourself a critical mass because they're geographically distributed across the country.
1: Yeah. And there's a ton of business out there. And so, I mean, the fact is, particularly in this crisis as, you know, Zoom calls is just, I think, a basis of communication now that is going to require fewer bank branches. It's going to just accelerate the communication between banks and technology. I think it's just going to open the door that customers are more aware as well as accepting of a video chat. You know, it I almost seems more that.
0: casual. It seems more casual. you I know. Really I agree. mean, just dressing up and walking to the bank puts an edge of formality in it. But here, right. you know, you're in your boardroom, you're talking to the banker, the banker's in their boardroom. You know, I think that we're in for a much more informal way of communicating that's more casual. And I noticed that Zoom has done that within about five weeks. Exactly. Back. You know,
1: everything is becoming digital now. So the fact is, is you can send me your tax returns, your financial statements, or just upload them in a different place, and I can read them quickly, digitally. All that is just speeding up the way in which things are going to be analyzed and done really more accessibly, conveniently, easily, and probably at a better price.
0: Ever since I've known you, you know, every quarter, I notice some shifts that you're making, you know, your knowledge is different, your attitudes are different, your skills are different, habits are different. But what do you notice about yourself personally, you know, as a person right now, but also just as an entrepreneurial banker, what shifts are you noticing since New Year's? How are you thinking about yourself differently right now?
1: Yeah, I have to tell you that, well, nobody likes to see a crisis. I'm kind of built for one. And maybe this goes back to my history of, of living in a crisis or working in South Central LA with bank robberies and things, boy, the more chaotic the situation is, the more calm I am and the more I can perform at my best. I'm really, maybe I should have been an ambulance driver or something, Mm -hmm. but it's in these spaces where I'm engaged. I'm focused. The visionary mind in multiplier just works on overload. And while there's a crisis going on, I'm more anxious about the opportunities than I am the problems just because There's always opportunities in this space. And so I've seen this for me as a real time of engagement. It also comes into play, again, I'm falling back on my history a little bit, in developing the culture and the leadership team and that self-managing company, that group, it's in times like this when your culture is strong, the healthier your culture, the faster your team is. And the fact is, my team is just moving at light speed today because they have this trust, they know how to work together. And it's another time of when I think from a coach client standpoint, and I see this on the calls, where that decisive leadership with lack of perfect knowledge of this is the course we're going to take. This is how it's going to go. It's going to be okay. There's a little bit of inspiration, maybe preacher teacher, but the fact is there's decisions and commitments and they're moving forward. It may not be perfect. It doesn't matter. I don't know. These are times are kind of built for coach clients in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I was just reminded of one of your Fellow Free Zone entrepreneurs, Norm Dunigan from South Carolina. And I remember he was coming up for his, I think it was the October last year, 2019, but it was hurricane season along the East Coast. Norm has some really breakthrough restaurant ideas and how you revitalize small to medium sized cities with a particular way of approaching the hospitality trade. But his main business is a waste management company. You know, he came in for dinner. So this is maybe two or three days after the hurricane had done its worst in South Carolina. And I said, now, Norm, you're feeling guilty, aren't you? And he says, yeah. he says, I got to admit it. I really do love a great hurricane everyone <laughs> myself because <laughs> it's all clean up it's all clean up and he's right. got a plywood company because people you know have lost their windows yeah. they lost their roofs then he's got a johnny on the spot company you know the temporary toilets and he yep. takes and and stuff. Them. yeah and perfect. he says and then they have to have some place to eat so they travel 25 30 miles and knock out a restaurant is yeah, uh, waiting for them but it's very very interesting that <laughs> entrepreneurism is a constant in good times and entrepreneurism is a constant in bad times. Okay. You know, it's almost like buying and selling. I mean, it all depends. Sometimes you've got a negative solution, a solution to negative things, and sometimes you have a solution to positive positive things. And it's just your ability to pivot really, really fast that I think is really the key here.
1: You had mentioned earlier about the difference between being a buyer and a seller and we switched from being a seller to being a buyer in about two weeks with this paycheck protection program. And we're taking orders left and right and reaching out to people and giving them some love and some, I don't know, a little love and attention in this type of, oh, you yeah. know, just is so important to people and it lowers their anxiety. And we're going to have more customers than we know what to do. with.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's very interesting. Just my, you know, I'm not a deep historian on that, but the two problems with the Great Depression that happened in, actually it happened over a couple of years. You had the bank crash. Everybody thinks it was 1929, but it wasn't experiences that there was just a drop in the stock market, but it was actually like a 16-month period from the end of 29 to the beginning of 31. And the two crucial mistakes that they made at the government level was that they didn't support the banking system, and they cut credit rather than making credit readily available. And in those days, you didn't have the Federal Reserve to back up the banks. I think there's probably nothing more devastating than to see the bank that you have your money in go bankrupt.
1: Absolutely. That is not a good sign for community, I can tell you that. No. Yeah, because the bank's balance sheet is just made up of everybody else's balance sheet. And if that goes down, that's a bad sign. So
0: you the other remember. thing is that you were quite complimentary of how fast the government moved in on this. I remember it was really, really right. You had the capability to really help people really quite quickly with this program, didn't you?
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, there were learnings definitely that I spent quite a bit of time in the last crisis in 08, in Treasury, Educating them as to what's going on in low-income communities and how things are happening and really the melting down of the housing market from a very lower... This
0: was the Department of the Treasury in Washington. The Department of the Treasury, yep. And so
1: it was the learnings kind of coming out of that was really err on the side of being more generous than less generous in terms of keeping people employed and housing supported because it's really taken us a decade to get back from that. So In addition to that, when they wrote this legislation, in terms of focused in on small business and employees, they just directionally had the right intent: keep people employed, keep a paycheck and health benefits. With that, we can make it over a certain period of time. And the U.S. is unique in this, in that we have so many community developer, community banks, and credit unions, and so forth. We have a whole distribution system in which to get this money out. And so, why not leverage that diversity and and make it happen? So, I think they were spot on in regards to the right place. And, you know, and these programs always have their challenges. You know, we're building the airplane and flying it at the same time at the moment in terms of writing rules, but we'll work through that. There's a little worry in there because you're working with government and so forth, but it's going to be fun. I
0: have a question about Free Zone Frontier, what you thought it was going to be and what it's turned out to be.
1: So I was a little unclear of maybe what it was going to be in the beginning. I didn't join like in the first group. I started talking to everybody who was in the group. I knew it was your time and attention and the people that are saying, boy, it's just different. This is more collaborative. And once I heard the word collaborative and partnership a couple of times, I'm like, this is the place I got to be because our business is really going to be dependent upon partnering and collaborating with whether it's fintechs, governments, nonprofits, business of any kind, that is where our business is going to thrive. And it's that intersection Of kind of commerce and finance that are going to be even more and more integrated. And so I have thoroughly enjoyed the Free Zone Frontier because everybody in there is so open and they're looking for ways to do business and collaborate on a big scale. And I don't know, it excites me. I love going every time because I'm looking for a Shetland pony in the barn of manure, if you will. And because there's going to be a nugget out there, there's going to be a partnership that happens that just is going to be fantastic. And so it's fun. Every time,
0: something I observed. We had on Monday. I had a Zoom, and we had four. And we had Ninad from Mumbai in India, and then Chipmunk, the plastic surgeon from Detroit, and then we had a new one, Steve Kreitzberg, who's in commercial real estate, and he buys commercial. He buys and keeps. He's someone who buys and keeps, and. We had this discussion, and it was very, very interesting at the end of the call that all of them said that five weeks into the scary times, their ambitions for the future are much, much bigger than their ambitions were when the lockdown happened. They escalated their ambitions, and it's very interesting where they were local or regional, they were going national in their plans and their goals, and where they were national, they were going global. So I'd like you just to finish off here by reflecting on that. What's possible for a local community bank in St. Paul, Minneapolis, afterwards now, just because of the kind of thinking that you're doing during this time?
1: Sure. And I can make it pretty specific because this is the live example. So we have been a small business administration or SBA preferred lender for 20 years. I would say we're one of the largest or larger in the state of Minnesota, which is good. But it's very much we make loans in a very prescribed in the two cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, as far as the SBA department is concerned. So it was good and it's always been a good little shop. We thought when this paycheck protect program came out, our first thought when I asked the person leading he said, Oh, I think we can do one, maybe two loans a day. That'd be our production. I'm like, You gotta at least think 10 times. We gotta do 10 to 20. He's like, 10 to 20, I'm not so sure. Yesterday we did close to 80. And so we're partnering with another technology company on the front end and automating a couple systems down the road. So we have like three different partnerships in our whole workflow process that we've spun up in the past week. We'll likely do over a billion dollars worth of SBA loans in the next 90 days. And we will have an SBA department that is a national SBA department. And we'll have customers everywhere in the U.S. Yeah. In a couple months.
0: Yeah. The interesting thing about this is that I'm starting to develop at least an American model, like a geographic U.S. model, yep. where you go into a town that's got a future or a small, medium-sized community, yep. and there's 20 unique processes, free zone unique processes that walk into that town, kind of together, you know, but yeah. totally, totally different aspects. You know, they're providing healthcare. There would be sure. hospitality, there would be manufacturing, there would be anything. But you kind of pick a town and say, let's just light up this town, you know. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm seeing. And it won't be something you even have to organize. It'll just happen. You know, yeah. like Some community will just lend itself to, hey, let's try out bringing all these unique processes in at the same time and get all the local players involved in this and everything. Yeah. So. It's almost like pioneering again. You know, yeah. remember the model I did of that took 270 years for the U.S. to go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean? Pacific, yeah. 1620 to 1890. In 1890, the Census Bureau said every acre of land in the continental U.S. has now been surveyed. So that's the end of the frontier. But what I'm seeing is a, a new frontier, a free zone frontiering now. Where you go back over the land that some of it was prosperous, and then time passed it by, and you go back, and there's a whole second level of pioneering that goes on. But this is free zone pioneering. This isn't rugged individualist pioneering, and it's technology driven, it's teamwork driven, and everything else. I just saw this come out when I talked about it. Everybody said, "Oh, that's that's really great," you know. And then that and. India said, well, the way I'm seeing things in my part of the world, India is going to be the magnet. He said, everybody talks about, you know, other players. But he said, we're really going to be the magnet because we have the best connection to the United States of any country. And he said, so it's going to be the U.S. in the Western Hemisphere. It's going to be India in the Eastern Hemisphere. So it was really interesting. He was already changing his mind about where the future of his entrepreneurism is going now.
1: Yeah. We'll have created this loan engine for this specific product, but in that technology, that end-to-end workflow, we will now have a loan engine that we can take globally. We can plug anything into it. And so it's the exact thing you're talking about. We'll hit national, and then from there, we'll be able to plug people in from all over the place. And so we'll just have the base of technology available to us. We've built that capability now.
0: Well, David, it's been a real pleasure. And I've just really admiring first of all I'm being you know I'm really being energized by your whole mindset and your approach and you're kind of looking for a good bank robbery this week type of exactly uh, no I I I need a good (laughs) crisis